0: Captain's log, stardate 41242.45. I've finished my work here on Risa, and now it's time to return to the Enterprise and be on our way. Ensign Sanders, this is Commander Allen on the planet's surface. Yes, Commander? One to beam up. All right, sir.
1: Welcome back to the Enterprise, Commander. Thank you, Ensign.
0: Negotiations on the planet were exhausting, but somebody has to... Do. Ensign Sanders, this is Commander Allen. Is there a problem up there? Please beam me up.
1: Uh, Ensign Sanders, who is that? I don't know. J- just a minute. I'm getting a transporter lock on a life form on the surface. The The computer says it's you, Commander.
0: The transporter must have malfunctioned and kept a copy of me on the planet.
1: Or maybe the real you is still on the surface and you're the copy. I'm not sure which one of you is the real you, but maybe we'll find out on today's show.
2: Hey, everyone, welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. I'm Chad Allen. I'm Paco Allen.
1: And I'm America's sweetheart, Mark Saunders.
2: Okay, guys, I have two things to say about the opening bit. Uh, number one, you both know the rule about science fiction, and so I don't know why you tried to sneak that in
0: there. I'm pretty sure we're going to spend a lot of the show talking about Derek Parfit, who himself yeah. uses the transporter thought experiment in like his seminal work that everyone praises and says...
2: Yeah, but he never says Star Trek.
0: He's never like, hey, have you guys seen this Star Trek episode? <laughs> well, that's because he publishes a book and he's going to get sued if he says Star Trek. <laughs> what? No, he's not. <laughs> like Gene Rodberry is going to be like, hey, get me Derek Parfait online.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think
0: so. Uh, he's also he's he's also British and I think he says teletransporter
1: or teletransporter. Yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark, how would he say it? I think it's would say teletransporter. It's like yeah. having a a, a tele meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is that a thing that happens at tele meeting? <laughs> have you have you not heard of the phrase tele meeting for a a conference call? Uh, it was all the rage some somewhere back in the 1970s. or 80s. In in South Africa, <laughs> <laughs> or in Australia, or yeah,
2: among <laughs> among some
1: business communities,
2: yes,
0: yeah um okay what's the second thing you've got to complain about so
2: the second thing i have to say is that i i can't believe that we have continued in the long tradition of stereotyping the guy who runs the transporter so as as you know some flavor of british guy so some some ethnic stereotype yeah in in classic star trek beam me up scotty you're like asking the scottish guy to beam you up And next generation, Commander O'Brien is standing behind the transporter console all the time, Irish dude. And now in our version of this, we've got an English guy behind the transporter control panel beaming people up. I just feel like there's some pattern of oppression uh, (laughs) directed at at the British people, you know, in terms of forcing them to operate this terrible device.
0: I think it speaks to the engineering prowess of of Great Britain. (laughs) We could have been really stereotypical and had Mark do a German accent. Did a German dude ever operate the transporter? Well, no, but if you want to be like, oh, the engineering guy, who's good at engineering? Let's make him German. (laughs) Yeah,
2: but I don't think, well, at least in the case of O'Brien, it's not like he ever really did any engineering as far as I can tell. And Scotty is most well known for the line, beam me up, Scotty which is all just about like having a highly skilled a grade engineer standing behind a console pushing the teletransporter the teletransporter buttons i don't know it just seems like
0: i think you're diminishing the skill that goes into pattern buffering you know like <laughs> it's not a button it's like a whole yeah. console back there with all kinds of switches and dials you know, the faders and whatnot that go up and down, you know, like, I mean, that's who I want the most skilled guy. Back I guess there I'm while.
2: just I'm just I'm just disappointed that not only did you guys have to resort to a cheap science fiction analogy in order to communicate this thought experiment, but you also perpetuated this crime against the British people in terms of stereotyping them as
0: teletransporter operators.
1: I think you're just concerned that we're stealing your
0: jobs. I don't want to pull back the curtain too far, but I'm pretty sure you wrote this intro. <laughs> <laughs> We're also 10 minutes into the show and haven't talked about anything other than Star Trek references. So thanks for listening, half of our audience. For the other half that's stuck around, let's get into some actual philosophy.
1: Yes. Pl- please tell me more about this delicious yog- yogurt and fruit dessert, this uh, this Derek Parfait of which you speak. <laughs> Derek Parfait? <laughs>
2: Okay, so the the teletransporter story that you heard at the top of the show is a version of a thought experiment that was developed by the English philosopher Derek Parfit. Um, and just to be clear, in his version of the thought experiment, here's how teleportation works, or teletransportation works. <laughs> teleportation? What does he call it, Mark?
0: Teletransportation.
2: Teletransportation. Here's how it works for Derek Parfit. Um, so you step onto the platform, say on the planet, and the transporter platform there scans you and reads the structure of your body all the way down to the last atom. And then it transmits that data to the transporter platform on the Enterprise. And that transporter platform rebuilds you from atoms on the Enterprise, uh, so that you're an exact duplicate of, uh, of the person that was standing on the planet, and then it destroys that version of you that was on the planet, and there you go. Lo and behold, you're standing on the
0: Enterprise. Complete with all of your memories and brain states that existed when you were scanned, because it was scanned down to the atom. Down to the atom, because your
2: memories are just a function of how your brain is organized. And so if we're able to scan that down to the atomic level and then reconstruct it, you're going to have all of those neural pathways. And so you're going to have all of those memories. And so the person who shows up on the transporter platform on the Enterprise um, is going to remember having been on the planet's surface a moment before that and remember everything that ever happened to them in their entire life um, prior to that. So you will have a continuous series of mental states that are linked to each other. Um, And the question that Parfit asks is, well, what if the transporter malfunctions and it doesn't destroy that copy that's on the surface? And so, you know, like the power goes out just as it's about to destroy that copy. So it's already transmitted the data to the enterprise. The enterprise is already rebuilding the copy of you on the platform and then the power goes out. And instead of destroying the copy on the planet,
0: that copy also that, that original sort of local copy also survives. And so now there are two of you, or maybe there wasn't a malfunction. Maybe you didn't have the best engineer operating the (laughs) transporter, right? Maybe you said, Hey, Hey, Scotty, (laughs) Hey, grade A engineer, the best engineer I've got. Take the day off. Hey, junior guy, come in here. First day on the job, beam me up.
1: Yeah, a lot of those, a lot of those transporter um, uh, uh, mechanics, those engineers, also come from uh, a nationality that have a great history of of heavy drinking, (laughs) such as such as the Scottish and the Irish. (laughs) Right, (laughs) Paco's
2: trying to help you out here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, nice trap, nice trap, Chad.
0: (laughs) Walk right into that one, Mark. (laughs)
2: Um yeah so you're right like they they there could have been uh some slacker ensign uh behind the console um who just you know didn't do a good job of managing the pattern buffer and you know lo and behold he pushed the wrong button and now there's two people right there's a there's a guy on the surface who thinks he's commander Allen and there's a guy on the enterprise who thinks he's commander Allen and how do we know which one's which? And what Parfit's trying to lead us to is the question of how do we figure out who is the real commander Allen? And if we can figure that out, then maybe we'll have a strong uh, concept about the nature of personal identity, and so we'll know what it means for you to be you, and we'll know what it means for you to persist over time, and we'll have a definition of what in philosophy is called personal identity, or you know it's sort of a definition of the self or um you know how we can say that one person is the same person over time. so if you can figure out which of these two people is Commander Allen, right, then you know you'll have the framework that you need to have a theory of personal identity.
0: Right. And and this is a problem that goes much further back in history than Derek Parfit. Yes. You know, this idea of trying to understand what identity is and what personal identity is and especially how as, as humans, we can have a persistent ongoing identity that we think, you know, if I'm a different physical person, entity today that I was when I was five? How is it that I'm still the same person, the same identity that I was when I was five?
2: Right. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. Uh, You know, Derek Parfit is sort of looms large as a 20th century philosopher who did a lot of work on the notion of personal identity, but it it does go much further back. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the ship of Theseus, which is a, you know, very related problem around just sort of generally speaking, how do things, um, you know, retain their identity over time. Um, and John Locke uh, actually wrote a fair bit about personal identity um, in the 17th century. And he tried to sort of Redefined the notion of personal identity as as not being tied to our physical bodies, um, and argued that the self was defined by consciousness. Um, and and he was sort of one of the first people to kind of put forward the notion of consciousness. And he um he defined it as a and this is a quote from his essay concerning human understanding, which was written in 1689. He said that a thinking intelligent being that has reason and reflection and can consider itself as itself, the same thinking thing in different times and places. So that is his definition of consciousness. And I think a way to think of that in sort of contemporary, contemporary terms is um, this sort of like causally linked mental states um, where we sort of have this self-awareness about our own mental states over time and where, these mental states are, are linked to each other in a causal fashion where sort of one follows the other. And it's that kind of continuity of mental states or consciousness that Locke thought um, constituted personal identity. And that belief in one form or another is still um, very prominent in contemporary philosophy.
0: Right. I mean, and to kind of break it down into maybe even simpler terms it has a lot to do with memory you know in the in the kind of the most simple yeah. f- in the most simple description it's essentially having memory of your past self and some kind of chain of connected memories or chain of connected consciousness of those memories that equals identity and it's not so much about like your desires or hopes or dreams, because those things can change over time. It's more about the memory of your past self. Um, Right. And I think there's maybe like one other person that we should put um, kind of in there, you know, between Locke and Parfit, which is Thomas Reed who um, kind of adds a, an addendum to uh, Locke's, description of this chain of memories, uh, because I think one of the, one of the problems with that, with Locke's version is that, um, you know, you can imagine yourself as an old man, not remembering what your life was like when you were five, either just because you've gotten old and forgotten or, you know, whatever. So kind of the, the, the modification of that, that Thomas Reed adds is, uh, this, kind of idea of a boy who becomes I think a colonel and then he eventually becomes a general and there are different events in his life at each of those stages Uh, and when he's the general he can't remember you know what he did as a boy when he was three or four Uh, but he can remember being a colonel Um, but when he was a colonel he can remember the things that he did as a boy so as long as there's this kind of unbroken chain and uh, you know when you're Seven, you can remember what you did when you were five. And when you are 10, you can remember right. what it was like when you were seven. And so, so it's on. like transit. You don't have yeah. to remember. Yeah, you don't have to remember every single moment of your life. It just has to be this kind of continuous chain of right. being able to remember the past. Yeah, there has to be some kind yeah. of continuity there.
2: Yeah, I guess that's how I think about when I say like causally linked mental states. That's kind of how I think about that phrasing is like, all of those mental states are sort of linked together by causation. So, you know, even if late in your life, you can't remember what happened to you when you were five, it's nonetheless the case that if you follow the chain of your mental statements back, um, to the time when you were five, there's like a clear causal link um, between all of those mental states. But I think that is like an interesting, um, I actually hadn't heard that, framing of it by Thomas Reed I think that's really I think that's really great and I think that does sort of puts a sharper point on some of his thinking
0: yeah I mean I think he was essentially trying to defend some of Locke's critics who were yeah you know uh, raising questions about instances where you know in in later in your life you can't remember an event from earlier in your life and does that undermine Locke's theory yeah yeah yeah
1: it's like if you we 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 had in the uh, in the mind body episode, you know, if you lose your leg or your arm, you're still yourself, even though you're you're less of a physical uh, body than you were before. You don't have to remember everything in your complete history and if your your lineage in order for for you to be you.
2: Yeah, and that's and that's then where this transporter problem sort of comes in, right? Because if you are defined by your sort of continuous set of memories or causally linked mental states, then what we get in the transporter example is something that seems like there are now two U's, right? Because there are two things in the world that have all of those memories or all of those linked mental states. And we, if we can't come up with an answer for which one is really you, then it seems like we don't have a solid grasp of what it means for a person to persist over time and that's really what so this this concept that Locke has and that Reed then develops is sort of one of the things that the thought experiment is meant to challenge because it says basically, oh, you thought you had a." definition of personal identity what it means for a person to be the same person over time but here's a thought experiment that shows you how those uh, those mental states or those memories that you thought defined a personal identity don't actually work because now you've got two people and you got to figure out which one is the actual commander allen and trying to do that by making reference to these um, you know, this sort of continuous chain of mental states or these memories or this consciousness isn't going to work because now you have two people who have the same
1: set of memories and experiences. You're branching the, uh, the repo.
0: Yeah. And the, one of the reasons that they can't have the same identity is because although they share down to the atomic level identical histories of memory they're clearly not the same person because they now occupy two different places in time and space
1: right could you argue that they are the same person for an instant and st- until they start recording new memories just because they're they're physically twice the, the mass they were before if you ate a you know a bunch of pound cake and donuts um you know you could be <laughs> twice the weight but still be the same person
2: well i think that gets to sort of the other way that this problem has been address which is to say okay like forget about like there are problems there are other problems with this notion that consciousness or memories or mental states are what define the self so for example if you were to fall into a vegetative state you would no longer have consciousness or any of these memories but we would probably still say yes, that person in a coma or that person in a vegetative state is Mark, um, even though that thing that's in a coma or in a vegetative state does not have uh, all of your memories or consciousness. And so that's another intuition where this definition of self kind of fails us because we want to say that that's Mark, but if Mark just means a, a continuous you know, a series of mental states or a consciousness, then it's, then, then we're not going to be able to say that about the person in a coma. I think
0: maybe an even a more even pointed, uh, example of that would be, uh, here's this person, let's say it's Mark and he's turns out to be a serial killer. He's killed 50 people. And then one day he's in a car accident and he has brain damage and he has amnesia. And therefore his chain of like conscious memories, has been severed and he can't remember his right. past anymore. You would yeah. basically say, according to this definition of identity, that he's not the same person anymore. He's a new person. He doesn't have that unbroken chain of conscious memories and he's building new memories and building a new identity. So it's like a get out of jail free card. Yeah, this Mark 2.0 is not responsible <laughs> for the things that Mark 1.0 did in the past. <laughs> And I think honestly, some people would argue that, but it certainly seems tough. Yeah, just kind of at a intuitive gut level to say no; those are two, not Mark. those yeah. are two different identities. It's not the Mark that killed those fifty people. It's some new Mark. I'm I'm
2: really intrigued by the concept of a Mark 2.0. <laughs> that just sounds really cool, and like an Iron Man, like a suit of Iron Man armor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> right that's i guess that's part of it is that it's like mark
1: two <laughs> I, i've heard this is maybe i, I don't want to jump ahead to the uh to the second half of the show but i've heard of some people along the lines of um giving your children weird names uh, uh the one family abandoning the second or the junior and going with a 2.0 signifier uh and <laughs> then duplicating the parents name wait didn't you
2: didn't you do weird kid names in the last episode. Is this like your new thing? You're you're just gonna have weird kid names in the second half. I don't you know? think I was the
1: same person back then. Heraclitus <laughs> says you can't step into the same river twice.
0: I mean there was there there is a case that's similar to this or kind of a lot I thought this might have been where Mark was going. Um, there's a woman named Lisa Russell in the UK who is in a car crash and I think she was nineteen and had Essentially, total amnesia of her entire life. She recognized her dad and knew that that was her dad, but other than that, couldn't recognize anybody else, anybody else from her life and That's didn't weird. have any memory of the first 19 years of her life. Yeah. And referred to herself as Lisa Two and referred to the person that had existed, the identity that had existed before the car crash as Lisa One, and huh. like could not. You know, essentially anytime anybody showed her a picture or told her a story or showed her a video of herself before the car crash, it to her, it was like seeing an identical twin that she had never met. And she she's like, oh, that's Lisa one. Yeah, it was Lisa one and she was Lisa two. Huh. All right. So there's precedence for Mark 2.0. Sure. Yeah. We just need to smash his brain in a car crash. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, too. Um. That's going to be bad for the podcast, I think. So I, I
2: think we should just to like provide some structure here, right? There's so that we've got this thought experiment about the transporter and we went down one path of trying to figure out who is the real commander Allen, which is this appeal to mental states or consciousness or memory. And we found some problems with that because we have two people who have the same memories. And there's another approach um which is a, which is the a, a more physiological approach, which is to say that the self is defined um by a continuity of of physical states. So like being made up of the same stuff or being the same physical entity over time. You know, and that's there's there's some appeal to that because that's kind of how we in some sense how we sort of experience the personhood of other people around us in a lot of ways, right? Like we think of Paco as like this physical thing in the world, you know, that we can like shake hands with and say hi to and we can see him walking around.
0: Yeah. Most people think of Paco as not just a physical thing, but really like a right. a physical a <laughs> physical presence. Right. Yeah. Like a like a real
1: presence. Like a sensation. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> Sweeping the nation. The disturbance and the force. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um and this really calls back to the earlier episode about the ship of Theseus because you know in that episode we talked about how do we how do we know or understand the 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 concept of this this physical ship this boat as a thing that persists over time and we had this whole conversation about you know if you replace parts of the ship over time and like gradually you end up replacing every single part on the ship. Like, is it still the same ship? And you run into some of the same kinds of problems. um, When you try to think about the notion of personhood being attached to a physical body. And, you know, there's a lot of, I think Paco, you've read more about this than I have, but there's a lot, you know, a lot of sort of like kind of popular, uh notions about the fact that like all of our cells are replaced every seven years or every 10 years and so does it really make sense to say that like i'm the same person that i was 15 years ago if i'm not made up of any of those sort of like actual cells or atoms that i was made up of 15 years
0: ago i might save some of that stuff for the end of the show because there's just kind of like a lot of facts and statistics but i think the bottom line is is that a huge amount of what you will think of as the physical you is replaced really frequently, whether you're talking about specific cells or the atoms that make up your body you know if if you're banking on this or well, ar-
1: large parts of you isn't isn't even you right the large part of you is is bacteria isn't a whole other life form that you consider part of your biomass
0: yeah yeah uh, I mean we we can get into that as well i mean it's that's a whole giant discussion, but the bottom line is is that Whether you're talking about uh, cells or molecules or atoms, if your argument is that the physical stuff that is me is what determines my identity, you can throw that out pretty quickly because most of it isn't the same stuff that you were born with, if any of it. yeah. And most of it isn't the same stuff that you were made up of a year ago or seven years ago, um, depending on how you're looking at it. So if... If what determine what determines your identity is the physical stuff you are made out of, then you're not the same uh, identity that you were minutes ago, let alone a year ago, let alone when you were born.
2: Right. And if you take the transporter example, like you end up with some of the same problems, right? Because so imagine that the transporter works the way it's supposed to. All your data is copied. The copy of you on the planet is destroyed. A new copy of you is reconstituted on the ship. Well, that's not made up of any of the same atoms that you're made up of on the surface, so it definitely can't be you because it's not any of the same atoms. Like right. they've all been sort of just like reconstituted out of, I guess, like the atoms that are floating around on the. Tr- I don't even know how replication works,
0: but let's not get into trying to figure out whether or not Star Trek makes sense yeah, from a scientific okay. standpoint. But the the bottom line is, is I mean, so some people will kind of. Uh, criticize the transporter thought experiment and say, well, like, that's science fiction. Like, could that ever really happen? And if not, like, what's the point of throwing that experiment out there? But I think there's validity in it, even if it is pure science fiction. But the fact of the matter is, whether you're transported from planet Risa up to the Enterprise and the entity that is reconstructed on the enterprise is made up out of completely different atoms as the one down on the planet that happens in the real world on this planet, just through the very fact of your body existing over time and atoms right. being replaced right. and cells being replaced. So like we don't even need the transporter thought experiment. It's just like, it just makes it a much quicker yeah. and You're right. more poignant example.
2: And so where we net out then is that these two avenues that we've, explored for defining personal identity have both hit a dead end right which is we tried defining personal identity in terms of consciousness or memory or mental states and that didn't work because we can weirdly end up with multiple people who have the mental same mental states or we can weirdly end up with someone who we think is the same person over time even though they've lost a whole bunch of their mental states and this the physiological approach doesn't work because It turns out that someone who we think is the same person over time ends up not really having physiological continuity. So basically, you know, all of these thought experiments are meant to show us that our intuitions about who is, you know, Paco over time or Mark over time. We don't really have a way to like come up with a theory that supports those intuitions. And so that's really the problem that the, thought experiments are trying to, you know, to sort of highlight. And I think it's worth just spending a couple of minutes on what Derek Parfit says about all this, because we, this is now we're in sort of a jam that we should try to get out of, uh, right? Which is that we, we we've tried a couple of different ways to come up with a definition of what makes a person the same person over time. And we, we didn't find anything that worked,
0: And so, well, what do we do with that? Right. Well, I think one of the things just to point out as well is that, you know, I know that, you know, celebration and and awards aren't always a uh, marker of the quality of someone's work. But I think that a lot of people do think of... Derek Parfit's work on this particular problem of personal identity as some of the most important contemporary philosophy. And some people, absolutely, you know, hold him in the same regard as they hold, you know, Nietzsche and Plato and Aristotle and say that he's, you know, he's done some of the most important work in the history of philosophy. And, you know, it's it's interesting to actually talk about a subject where one of the most influential people in that area of study is actually still alive.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think he's an amazing... Figure in philosophy and an amazing person. You know, we'll we'll find some time to talk about him in the second half of the show. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it's a rare moment for us in the 21st century where we're sort of like contemporaneous with someone who is a you know massively important figure in you know in a in, a, in an area of philosophy and, and Derek Parfit certainly you know, is sort of one of the great milestones in the entire history of thinking around personal identity. And he, he's done a lot of work in, in other areas as well. And he's just a super interesting guy in general. But yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and so this this thought experiment about the the, the transporter um, and a lot of his thinking about personal identity comes from a, a a book called Reasons in Persons, which was published in 1984. And just to sort of like briefly talk about how he thinks we should resolve our inability to satisfy our intuitions about personal identity with a with a strong definition uh, so first of all he he's what's known as a reductionist he likes making sauces yeah he loves a good balsamic reduction it's amazing to be living contemporaneously with one of the great reductionist chefs in in the history of cooking is that what you're getting at
0: yeah i mean not so long-winded but yeah
2: Right. <laughs> well, yeah. T- I mean, you shouldn't like give me a chance to talk. It's always going to be long-winded. Um. So he's so he's a reductionist in the in in the philosophical sense, which is to say that he he thinks that we are really just our bodies, our brains, and our, our other organ systems. But he also thinks that the notion of identity is not determinate, and so he says that it's essentially sort of a loose concept that we create like the concept of nations or clubs, and, and those are two examples that he puts forward. So so think about nations, for example. So the U.S., is just a collection of these states, but what defines that collection? It's kind of just like an arbitrary decision by us to say like, oh, these 50 states make up the United States. The notion of the United States is not a thing that exists in the world. It's It's a thing that it's a way that we have sort of arbitrarily grouped some things together. We could say tomorrow, for example, that Rhode Island is no longer a state. And so we've just changed the definition of the United States. And And we can do that because the United States is not sort of like a thing that exists in the world. Well, tell that to a Texan. So Parfit says that the... the you know, the the notion of personal identities is very much similar to that in, in the sense that we kind of create personal identity as a concept and that we sort of arbitrarily choose a cluster of physical states and mental states and, you know, our experience of the world and bundle those together to define an individual. But it's not something that exists there, like out there in the world over and above the physical bodies
1: like a mathematical proof
2: right yeah exactly
1: yeah M- michael j fox made a point saying that um you know he- he's only famous because people believe he's famous and if everybody stopped <laughs> believing he was famous he wouldn't be famous it's not an intrinsic element that's perfect i think that's those people example. have never seen
0: the back to the future trilogy <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think that's like an axiom of comedy
2: yeah i mean that's true so anyway that i think that so that's perfect's take on all of this is is that identity is essentially a, a construct of ours which by the way he doesn't take that to be to mean that personal identity is not an important concept or or a meaningful thing he he just means to say that it's not intrinsically i think he he uses the term like a further fact like it's not the notion of identity is not a further fact in the world above and beyond our physical bodies it's a it's a thing that we create. Yeah. Which doesn't make it less important or unimportant. It just it just means that it's not something that exists there out in the world separate from our physical bodies. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, I saw a really interesting program that he was on called Brain Spotting, and it was kind of part interview with him and then part recreations of his thought experiments. And it's really interesting just because one, you get to kind of hear his ideas in his own words and see him on camera which again back to what we were talking about earlier you know it's not like you get to see Plato or Aristotle or Nietzsche or Kant or anybody else on camera so it's 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 interesting to see you know somebody who has his kind of reputation expressing his own thoughts you know in his own words and not just reading them off of a piece of paper Um, but then I think they also do like an interesting job of kind of reenacting the thought experiments and and editing them into the interviews with him so uh, it's an interesting piece and if you want to hear kind of more in his own words you know on his thoughts about how identity is similar to nations or clubs and kind of his point of view on what all that means in terms of how you live your life and and view the idea of identity it's uh, it's definitely worth watching you can just search for it on youtube and it's up there it's like 20 minutes
1: or check the show notes I also want to point out that um, uh, the 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 idea of the self as being a um, an artifact of of how we perceive is is also um, a, a big tenet in a lot of um, religions. So uh, Buddhism talks about the na- nature of self and the nature of identity as being, just say, a temporary form that um, the uh, the uh, the ascetics can can look beyond, uh, which is only a you know a factor that we are limited to by our kind of everyday perceptions.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting. We can talk about this in the second half of the show, but um, there definitely comes a moment in Parfit's life where he sort of comes to the realization that a lot of his personal beliefs are very overlapping with Buddhism, um, you know, as a result of the, the work that he's done in his academic career on personal identity. But I think maybe we should try to actually get to that stuff and just sort of take a break right here.
0: Hey everyone. As usual, we wanted to take a second and thank all of you for listening and for the support you've shown. It's been great to watch our listenership grow every week, to see your tweets and read your emails. If you're enjoying You've Got It All Wrong, why not help others discover the show? Providing a rating or review in iTunes helps make sure that we pop up in the directories, as does subscribing to the show. Plus, when you subscribe, you'll get the new episodes as soon as they're out. We had a lot of fun last week addressing some of your questions. If you want to be part of the show or correct a mistake Chad made, or let Mark know how you feel about his depiction of Star Trek engineers, you can shoot an email to questions at you'vegotitallwrong.net.
1: I think that takes care of all the housekeeping. Now, back to the show. There is no spoon. Sorry, that wasn't a Matrix <laughs> reference. That was my wife asking uh, where the spoon was.
2: <laughs> you can't just, that. that's, no, you're not going to be able to just sort of sneak in <laughs> your sci-fi references like that. Are you saying that your wife came down to your recording studio in the garage and asked for a spoon?
1: Yeah, you know, our one spoon that we have as a family. She, uh, <laughs> and I said, there is no spoon. Um, maybe it's in the dishwasher. <laughs> okay, so um,
2: I definitely wanted to spend some time um, talking about Derek Parfit. And I don't know if you guys had other things that you think are sort of like... Do you have any of
0: his poems to read?
2: I have an excerpt from one of his poems, um, the one that was published in uh, The New Yorker in 1962.
0: you going to do a dramatic reading?
2: Um, I am, if uh, my iPad will work, which it seems like it
0: won't. So... Maybe you should do a dramatic reading while I get my internet <laughs> to work. I, did, I don't. I don't have any of his poems. I just know that as a child and a youth, he wanted to be a poet and then gave that up when he was, what, in his late teens? 17, 18?
2: Well, he moved to New... So this much I can tell you just from memory without looking at my notes. Um, he moved to... Uh, new york in 1961 um before he went to college so he, he moved to new york in in the summer of 1961 he worked for the new yorker so he worked for as a as a researcher for the talk of the town section of of the new yorker magazine which is you know sort of like a mainstay of that publication over the last hundred years and he wanted to be a poet like that was sort of like his first Love and and he took this job at the New Yorker as a way to sort of like embed himself in the literary culture of New York City, and he was there for a summer and and and, he, and then he went back to Oxford in the fall to study philosophy. Um, and and I, I actually I, I think that he did his degree at Oxford in, uh, in history. Um, but but ended up working in philosophy and yeah and so he and then he did later. Um a, a year later had one of his poems published in the New Yorker.
0: Okay. You gonna read it?
2: Dude, I am. I have had problems getting my iPad connected to the internet all f-ing night. Let me see if I can make it happen and I will read it. I'm sorry to have to make
1: you edit this. What kind of poem was it? Was it a dirty limerick? <laughs> no. No. I was just trying to think about that period that um would that be late fifties, early sixties? There once was a man
0: from Nantucket, <laughs> whose continuity of memory said, "Yeah." It.
2: You know, the irony is that I was looking for this on my iPad, and I had it open on my laptop the whole time.
0: I don't know if that sounds like irony so much as it sounds like stupidity.
2: Yeah, you could say that. So he, wa- so he had wanted to be a poet since he was nine or ten years old. Uh, just before I, I read this little snippet of his poetry i want to make sure that we point uh listeners to this great profile of of parfit that was actually published in the new yorker in the september 2011 issue and if you like this episode at all even a little bit you should really go check out this article and we'll put it in the show notes but so here's a here's a snippet um a derek parfit poem which again was published in in 1962 in the new yorker and it goes like this a fierce tug on the line jerked you back. You pulled it once, leaping between delight and horror that the line you wound was tearing a pointed hook through flesh. You held the fish, then lashed it savagely against the deck, and threw the battered pulp far out to sea. With sickness in your throat, you went below and lay half sick till port. So, that's what was happening in the mind of Derek Parfit at the tender young age of eighteen when he was in New York City
0: loved fishing
2: <laughs> yeah he he loved to fish it was It was a lifelong passion of his.
1: It sounds like he was is quite influenced by uh, by Seamus Heaney, who must have been a, a contemporary at that point
2: I'm not yeah, and I'm not really familiar with his work i It wouldn't surprise me, mark, if you have a line of his poetry or an entire poem or even an entire book committed to memory. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I i have very little uh i have very little seamus heaney uh pike perfect pike that's all i can remember of his uh but it was fish based so maybe that's why i'm thinking of him there you go um so yeah so and in, and in, in general his life like follows a
2: really um interesting uh arc because his academic thinking and his academic work really sort of influenced his personal philosophy or his personal life there's one quote in particular i really like he said that when he still thought of the self as a further thing so like a thing above and beyond our our physical bodies he said quote my life seemed like a glass tunnel through which i was moving faster every year and at the end of which there was a darkness however when i changed my view the walls of my glass tunnel disappeared i now live in the open air there is still a difference between my life and the lives of other people, but the difference is less. Other people are closer. I am less concerned about the rest of my own life and more concerned about the lives of others.
0: Sounds like a real jerk.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he sounds like a super cool guy, and I, I, who you would love to hang out with. Um, and you know, th- this really struck me as something where you know, I, I, I had. You know, sort of an aborted career as a professional philosopher, and I think that this is the kind of thing that we never really read about or never really studied um, in academia. Is sort of like the the personal lives or the personal views of of philosophers and how their academic work. Um, you know, kind of influenced those views. So, I mean, I, I, I knew about Derek Parfitt and I'm, you know, was very familiar with his thinking about personal identity and itself, but sort of was never exposed to how, um, how his academic work like had such a profound effect on his, on his per- personal life. So anyway, I I just thought that was really interesting, Um, you know, especially like having come at philosophy from that sort of more academic perspective.
1: Is there a role for the professional philosopher that isn't academic? No, I don't believe so. Oh, well, back to
2: the glass tube. (laughs) I mean, that's, um, you know, one of the things that I really like about his work is that he manages to connect it up to a viewpoint about how we should live our everyday lives which i think is enormously rare and conspicuously missing from contemporary anglo-american philosophy
0: cool well so i've got a couple things um i didn't want to go down another huge star trek rabbit hole so uh, i'm just going to talk a little bit about the other things that i came across um while we were putting this show together. And um, I mentioned some of this in the Ship of Theseus episode, and we referenced it in the front half of the show. But I think this, you know, a lot of this stuff that I'm going to talk about is about this idea of whether or not the you that exists right now is the same physical you that existed yesterday or a year ago or 10 years ago. Um, And there's been a lot of of research on this topic, and I think it, it does make it more more real and, um, you know, maybe more poignant than talking about, uh, fictional ideas of transporters. Um, but there's, there's been a lot of discussion and a lot of debate, you know, for the last, um, you know, at least 50 or 60, 70 years about how much of the body regenerates, how quickly or is replaced, I guess I should say. Um, And, and how much of the, the you that exists now is the you that existed in some previous period of time? Um, you know, so there's a lot of different ways that you can look at this. You know, so you can start by saying 72% of your body is water. And on average, all of that water is replaced every 16 days. So you can at least say 72% of the stuff that you are made out of is not the same stuff that was there 16 days ago. But maybe you say, well, there isn't a whole lot about the memories of me or the mechanics of my brain that's water. You'd be wrong because a lot of that's water. But let's just say, like, look, that's kind of inert stuff that my body needs as its structure. And it's not that important if it gets replaced or not. Um, But back in 1953, uh, Dr. Paul C. Ebersold uh, did a study that he presented to the Smithsonian Institute called Radioisotopes. New keys to knowledge where he claimed that every atom in your body is replaced every year that every year your body is made up of a hundred percent completely new atoms really and there was a lot of good background and research for this and I think a lot of people in the scientific community believed that research that he had done to be incredibly accurate and, you know and he did it obviously by looking at the name of the title through, um, using radioactive isotopes, uh, you know, having people um, ingest those isotopes or measure those isot- isotopes in their body and kind of measure their um, persistence over um, over a year to see if they stay in their body within cells or if they get replaced. Yeah. Um, so that was has kind of been debunked a little bit in the last uh ten years or so by Dr. Jonas Friesen, who has written a lot about uh cerebral cortex cells. So uh while a hundred percent of the atoms in our body may not get replaced um within a given year, because he's found that the cells that make up your cerebral cortex are really probably the same cells that were there when you were born. Yeah but those are probably the only cells and the only atoms that are there when you're born and he 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 kind of studied this by looking at uh, what is the name of the element uh oh by looking at carbon 14 yeah which was is a specific r- uh radioisotope version of carbon that was created when everyone was doing uh, nuclear tests in the 60s so uh, you can measure the amount of that radioisotope that exists in cerebral cortex cells of people that were born before the nuclear tests, kind of during the active period of the nuclear tests, and after the nuclear tests. That's so fascinating! Um, and you can measure the amount of that radioisotope that does or not does or does not exist in the cells of their cerebral cortex um, over their lifetime, and if those cells were being replaced and the DNA in those cells. Um, Uh, you know, was, uh, did not carry any of the carbon 14. then you could say like, okay, those cells are being replaced. But what he found is that they don't. So in the end, kind of the bottom line of that is, is that about 98% of the atoms that make up your body get replaced every year. So almost all of you is completely different than it was a year ago. Your skin gets replaced every seven days. Your skeleton gets replaced every seven years. So uh, I think it's 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 that kind of stuff, like the modern science of how the body works and how cells regenerate and how frequently the atoms that make up your body get replaced that kind of make like the transporter thought experiments moot because you're not the same physical stuff.
1: So we're always on the way back from Risa,
0: (laughs) just over
2: and over again. (laughs) there's like a weird wedge there for the um for the physiological argument which is to say i think that like um you could try to say i think that personal identity is equivalent to brains to the physical stuff that makes up your brain because it
0: turns out that that stuff is
2: physically continuous
0: and... but, o- but it's only but even then it's only a small part of the brain it's only the cerebral cortex and it's only yeah the but that's the that,
2: thinking conscious part
0: right but it's only it's also only the atoms that make up the neurons in the cerebral cortex so there's a lot of other stuff in your brain like your brain isn't the same size from a mass standpoint or a cell standpoint or the number of atoms that make it up as it was when you were born. Your brain actually does grow and it adds new mass and new matter to itself. So the neurons in your cerebral cortex are the same neuron cells that were there when you were born. But there's a ton of other stuff in your brain that isn't the same stuff that was there when you were born. And in order to say, well, that's enough physical continuity, then you'd have to be able to say like, okay, well then imagine all that other stuff that makes up your brain other than the cells that make up the neurons in your cerebral cortex disappeared and you'd still be the same person. Like, you'd die.
1: This sounds like a great case for uh, homeopaths. There's hardly any any of you in it in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Right. And so to to, to Mark's point earlier, just the, the last bit of weird statistics on your body um, 30% of your body by weight isn't even you or by that, I mean, isn't even human DNA or your DNA. Uh, it's Is it all, donuts. It's, do- it's donuts. It's Yeah. Well, I mean, in your case, yes, <laughs> um, it's, it's bacteria and viruses and, and other organisms that, um, that aren't your human DNA. Uh, and in fact, there's actually 10 times more bacteria cells in your body. Than there are human cells. Yeah, that's uh, such a crazy thing. Um... Your human cells, your cells, are replaced at a rate of millions of cells per second. So, like in the course of the second uh, of this of me talking and and stumbling over this sentence, you know, fifty million of your cells are new cells that weren't there when I started this sentence. What? I feel so productive.
2: Yeah. My back my like my my human cells or my bacteria cells. Your
0: human cells.
2: What? Well, what are they doing?
0: They're they're, just they're like dividing dying off in droves? Yeah. 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 Your your entire skin is replaced every 7 days. I mean your body's made up of trillions and trillions of cells. So the fact that like millions of them just got replaced isn't a big deal. It's like no big deal. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, yeah i would like to follow up on the whole uh, gut floor just with one comment and it's a, it's a quote from um from Cory Doctorow that he he uses a lot um that human beings are the gut floor of immortal transhuman corporations that they that we are just like one smaller piece of of a, of a, a a larger ecosystem that we can't even consider and that ecosystem is made up of corporations. Is that what you said? Of corporations, yeah, I- immortal yeah. transhuman corporations. But that that wasn't my that wasn't my fact. Um, my uh, I did want to bring up the the question of um, if there were if there were two Rikers um, and they both had exactly the same memories, we we discount them as being the same person because they're physically separate. Um, did you guys read uh, or come across uh, the novel? Last year, uh, the first novel, in fact, by a a novelist, Anne Leckie, called uh, Ancillary Justice. No. It's a a sci-fi novel. It it won the uh, Hugo and the Nebula and the uh, Arthur C. Clarke Prize. Jeez. It's it's based on the fact that um, uh, distant future, space opera, galaxy-spanning empire, and these uh, giant battle cruisers um, are piloted by artificial intelligence. And the artificial intelligence in the ships um, controls… Uh, reanimated corpses as uh, automata, as extensions of the uh, the artificial intellig- intelligence's consciousness. So each each excuse me each one of these bodies is in fact a uh, an instantation uh, instantiation of the the same intelligence that is running the ship. So each of them know exactly what each of the other bodies know and what the ship knows. Um, so even though they are physically separate, they are all the same identity; they they represent the same um, consciousness in the ship. So even if one or two of the bodies get separated because of um, issues with communication, and they're generating new memories independently of the larger organism, when their connection to the uh, to the hive mind is is uh, 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 active again, they uh, they basically just sync up all of those all of those uh, uh, experiences, even though they were created separately. So that's uh, another take on the. Uh, the idea of uh, whether the uh, you know consciousness can exist uh, simultaneously in parallel, if you were rather than in series.
0: You could have stayed on theme and talked about the Borg.
1: Yeah, I <laughs> 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 I, I could. Um, I, I do have a, a couple of other. Um, uh, I thought we were going to go a little more um, uh, Star Trek trivia. Um, no, nobody's gone there, so I just want to throw out a few. Um, we, we were few just leaving that for you. Oh, thank you. Um, we've used this phrase before, beaming up Scotty. The phrase "beam me yeah. up Scotty was never used in any episode of the 80 shows uh, broadcast by uh, Gene Roddenberry for Star Trek. I did not know that. Or the movies. The closest they came was beam us up Scotty, which was used in uh, one of the uh, uh, Star Trek animated series. But that's, uh, it's purely a huh. fiction. Right. Yeah, because it became kind of like a idiom for like,
2: Get me out of this crazy situation with these crazy people, right? Elementary, my
0: dear Watson. Exactly. Right, yeah. Good point.
1: Uh, The character of Chekhov was introduced uh, to meet the growing demand that the TV audience had for the Beatles and the Monkeys, hence his haircut. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because
0: that character wasn't in the weird pilot, right? No, no, it wasn't. Well, neither was Kirk. Yeah, that's true. Wait, but what, say that again? Chekhov was introduced to satisfy some craving for English pop bands?
2: I guess because he had the same haircut?
1: Yeah, in the fall of 1967, (laughs) both The Monkees and Star Trek were beginning their second season on NBC. While the former was quite successful, Star Trek's ratings were sagging. In an attempt to add, quote, teen appeal to Star Trek, NBC asked Jean Roddenberry to add a new character that looked like one of the monkeys. The result was the role of Pavel Chekhov. By what are you? Koenig. What are you quoting there? Can you give a citation? I can give a citation in the show notes. Okay. It's from the uh, Star Trek Wiki. Because <laughs> you're going to go edit Mark's the Wikipedia page journal. to just like, put in the
0: <laughs> that you just read. <laughs> Crap! I just yes, swore. Basically. but what like was gene roddenberry such an idiot that he didn't know that the Beatles were british and he is like oh just put a russian guy in there the Beatles are
1: russian right i I think he didn't he didn't he didn't go for the russian thing he just like get someone with a floppy haircut in there and uh, a bowl cut and that that was basically like you know you can do you can do whatever else you want with him just make sure he's got that haircut did did he not realize that you can cut someone's hair (laughs) (laughs) maybe not in this future um can I tell you about another another uh, character that Gene Roddenberry um, wanted to introduce but was uh, was told would be stupid? Um, uh, the uh, the concept for Counselor Troy um, uh, uh, originally she was going to be portrayed as sexually voracious and four breasted alien, but he was told uh, that concept was ridiculous and would so be. So he just made her
0: sexually her voracious and
1: gave her two huge jugs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, he 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 did that. He 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 invested in that surgery for uh, for the actress. Yes.
0: Well, I mean, it's casting. It's it's not like they had her cast and they were like, well, can't do the floor boobs, so
1: let's give her breast surgery. Yeah. Uh, on the on the subject of casting, um, uh, actors who uh, were up for the role of uh, Geordie Laforge in the Next Generation um, included Wesley Snipes, really, um, the uh, baseball player Reggie Jackson. And uh, the most interesting choice uh, was <laughs> more interesting than Reggie Jackson. Yeah, more interesting than Reggie Jackson, the uh, the, the the esteemed actor who sadly passed away in nineteen ninety one uh, of Kevin Peter Hall. Are you familiar with this 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 actor's work? No, no. He is uh, he is the seven foot two and a half inch actor that played uh, the Predator.
2: He would not have been able to like walk through the doors of the turbo lift.
0: Also, not more interesting than a baseball player who had zero acting career, and the only thing that seemed similar to him and the other people that Gene Roddenberry wanted to cast in that character was that he was <laughs> African American. Like,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah that's yeah.
1: Gene, Gene Roddenberry.
2: I mean, we could we could spend so much time in this rabbit hole. I I honestly, um, I, as long as we're talking about Chekhov's hair. Um, I, I, I can't resist a shout out to Joy Zapata, who was the hairstylist for The Next Generation, starting in season six. And it is, if you go back and watch TNG, an amazing transformation where in the middle of season six, like Worf gets that sweet ponytail and they get rid of all of Troy's like insane wig situations and everybody's hair just looks amazing. And I like, I like saw the first episode where Worf had a ponytail. Um, and I was like, holy, when I was re watching the series recently um, to make sure that you guys didn't sneak in any, any references. And I was like, wow, th- his hair looks amazing. Like, what's going on? And like, I watched the credits, and Joy Zapata um, was the lead hairstylist. And then I went and I looked her up um, on you know, on the internet or m- maybe the Star Trek wikia. And um, she actually won an Emmy that year for, uh for hairstyling uh, on TNG. <laughs> <laughs> that is the...
1: Both Troy and uh, Gates McFadden, uh, Dr. Crusher, both uh, had full wigs in the first season.
2: Ah, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, Gates McFadden's hair is also way better in season six.
1: Yeah, uh, Ugh, I can't. Don't even get me started
2: on on Beverly Crusher's hair. It's the worst. <laughs> Until Joy Zapata gets her hands on it,
0: uh, what what else does she have to her credit?
2: <laughs> um, you mean like on TNG, or like generally speaking?
0: No, yeah, like did was TNG her golden moment, or is she? I, th- n- I think known that, known that for was her stuff?
2: like magnum opus. Yes, I I I I think that. Um, look, I. I I have just regurgitated to you from memory an amazingly granular uh, spot of trivia. I don't know that much more about
0: Joy Zapatas. Correct. Right, well, I'm mm. I'm looking it up right now. Joy. Yeah, Zapata. She also did, uh, yeah, yeah,
1: key hairstylist on uh, three episodes of True Detective uh, in this season, this new season. Yeah. There you go. Really interesting.
0: Oh yeah, I mean. She also has such amazing credits to her, uh, to her name as Transformers, <laughs> Independence <laughs> Day.
1: Ah, hey, le- Legally Blonde. You got to have pretty good hair for that. Really?
0: Look, The Departed, Weeds. Yeah, L- Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, Meet the Fockers. What? what?
1: Columbo. I see. She
0: I, really? She styled Columbo's hair. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I mean, can
1: she guest on the show?
0: Star Trek: <laughs> Nemesis, Galaxy Quest. I mean, if you're gonna parlay your work on Star Trek into something, it's gonna be Galaxy Quest.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: Also, call back to Wesley Snipes, hairdresser for Blade. Really? Nah. Um. that's amazing she's kind of like
2: uh, as a like as of now she's sort of like one of my new heroes Uh,
0: another callback back to the future part three you're kidding me nope oh man okay I'm just gonna read this in reverse chronological order uh, from back to the future three back to the future three born on the fourth of July rain man inner space Howard the duck commando Tron Tron all right this is now my number one favorite person in all of Hollywood, director, producer, actor, or otherwise.
2: <laughs> Joy Zapata, hairstylist. Yeah. Okay, the first yeah. her first
0: two her first two credits as hairstylist, 1978 on Battlestar Galactica and Animal House. Like drop the mic. Yeah. Drop the wow. hairbrush.
2: That's amazing. That's amazing. Um I don't know how we got from personal identity to Joy Zapata's filmography as a hairstylist. But I'm but I'm glad we did.
1: But um, isn't hairstyling all about human identity?
0: I'm sure she <laughs> styled Riker's beard, and there's nothing that defines the identity of Riker or <laughs> Jonathan Frakes more than his beard. So Yeah. I think it's pretty look, I think that um I think that that Parfit like kind of runs down the identity arguments, you know, it, it, from body, brain, soul, memory. I think he left out beard. It might just yeah. be beard.
2: Yeah, yeah, it might just be. And Joy Zapatá is that
0: is the key to all of it. I can't think of a more terrible way to end the show. So, on that note, all right, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, please don't forget to subscribe to the show and give us a rating in iTunes. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can always do that online. You can email us at feedback at youvegotitallwrong.net with your questions, philosophical conundrums, paradoxes, things we've screwed up on the show, mysteries of the universe, etc. Uh, you can find us online at youvegotitallwrong.net and you can follow each of us on Twitter. I'm at Paco Allen. I'm at Chad Allen. And I'm at M. Sanders. Don't follow at Mark Sanders. We don't know who that is. And don't follow at America's Sweetheart. That's probably porn. Yeah. (laughs) Do find Joyce Zapata online and tell her how amazing she is and how she's made every movie and TV show you've ever loved even better by making the hair amazing.
2: All right, let's just go. Uh, uh, intro music. Is everybody ready?
0: Um, yeah, but I think you just did the music for... <laughs> the that? Muppet Show? No, for, you did. You just did the intro music for Inspector Gadget. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> you did. Oh, man, you did. this is... A... <laughs> yeah.
2: I, our music is not dissimilar from the Inspector Gadget music.
1: Okay. Please, please, can we can we put this out as an, an entire separate podcast feed? This 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 is just gold. Every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. people would disagree with that. <laughs> okay, you ready? Let's get a couple.